Good morning. It's Friday, the 1st of December, the first day of the last month of 2023. And this is Govindraj Ethiraj, based in Mumbai, India's financial capital, but now in transit. Just to say that we are live every morning, 6am in Mumbai and 8.30am in Singapore and Hong Kong. Our top stories and themes for the day. World markets have had their best month in three years. Tata Technologies IPO makes a triple jump on debut. India's GDP comes in at a surprise 7.6% for the second quarter. COP28. India wants a roadmap on climate finance in Dubai. Charlie Munger, the man, the investor, the Ramesh Damani interview. India sees close to 60 ultra-luxury home sales or worth more than 40 crore rupees each, even as Singapore overtakes New York as the most expensive city to live in the world. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. GDP numbers surprise. India's gross domestic product or GDP clocked a growth of 7.6% in the second quarter, that's July to September, surpassing both analyst and Reserve Bank of India's MPC or Monetary Policy Committee expectations, but slowing as compared to the previous quarter data as released by the National Statistical Office. Just to put the GDP numbers in context, for the same quarter last year, GDP was about 5.4%. And in the first quarter of this year, which is why it slowed down, the GDP figure was 7.8%. This time's GDP figure is, of course, interesting because the MPC or the Monetary Policy Committee of the Reserve Bank had predicted second quarter GDP growth at 6.5%. However, at a Business Standard newspaper summit last month, the Reserve Bank Governor Shakti Kanta Das said, and I did point it out here on the core report, that the Q2 GDP figure would likely surprise everyone on the upside. He actually said that looking at the momentum of economic activity, looking at indicators, he could say that as and when the number would be released, it would in all probability surprise everyone on the upside. So quite obviously, there was no probability in this. The Reserve Bank governor had a fairly good sense, if not the actual numbers. And like everyone else, was ready for a higher number, as I guess we were too at the core report, because we usually tend to take his statements seriously. The jump in GDP figures in the second quarter was led by manufacturing and construction. Manufacturing grew the most at about 14% in the second quarter, as compared to a fall of 3.8% in the same quarter last year. So that's a substantial jump. It was 4.7% in the first quarter of FY24. That's the last quarter. And therefore, manufacturing continues to grow while the overall GDP number, as we said, has slipped. The second highest growth was witnessed in the construction industry at about 13%, which was about 5.7% in the previous quarter, that's sequential, and last year it was about 8%. The electricity, gas, water supply, and other utility services industries registered a third highest growth of about 10% as compared to 6% in the previous quarter, which is sequential. Consumer demand, a key contributor constituting about 60% of GDP growth, remains strong and primarily driven by urban consumption. Tata Technologies triples on its debut. Tata Technologies almost tripled in its trading debut, making it one of the best listing gains for any initial public offering by obviously an Indian company of its size. The stock touched about 1,400 rupees on Thursday versus an offer price of 500 rupees after its roughly 3,000 crore IPO was oversubscribed 69 times. 
it finally closed at 1326 rupees which is a 165% return on its offer price of 500 rupees now tata technologies interestingly was the first ipo in close to 20 years from the more than 150 year old tata group the last ipo from the group was from tata consultancy services india's largest it company in size the ipo was amongst five offerings last week worth around 7000 crore rupees and a little over 200 ipos this year so far The success of Tata Technologies of course also in some ways marks the larger trends of waves of bullishness shifting from the secondary markets to the primary markets as investors seek better or bigger returns and hunt for good companies with pedigree to put their money in and this is a cycle we have seen before in the indian stock markets now tata technologies of course has benefited for mostly the right reasons but the same cannot be said for example of newbies in the tech space for lack of any other term who raised money in 2021 and whose share prices languish below offer price and many of these companies it was the promoters or the investors who were raising money and not the companies themselves Meanwhile the BSE Sensex had another good day closing at 66988 up 87 points while the NSE Nifty index ended 36 points higher at 20133 so do note it's still above 20000 almost magic number for those who follow the Nifty 50 Meanwhile Reuters is reporting that November has shaped up to be a fairy tale month for equities with the MSCI World Stock Index set to close the month up almost 9% which is its best performance since November 2020 when the markets were cheering the arrival of COVID-19 vaccines. Yes that does seem like a long time ago. November's equity rally has been broad based with global growth stocks in high tech sectors being up about 11% while value stocks which are mainly in cyclical industries and also offer high dividends for those who obviously stick around have gained around 7%. COP28 what's in store Representatives of some 200 countries are gathering in Dubai as we speak since yesterday for the 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference or COP28 India is being represented at the top by Prime Minister Narendra Modi while both the United States and China the two largest emitters are not being represented by their heads Joe Biden and Xi Jinping of China A key focus area will be a disaster fund and then on to issues like phasing out of carbon dioxide emitting coal oil and gas the main source of warming emissions an early breakthrough on a damage fund which poorer nations have demanded for years could help set the stage for other agreements it's believed i reached out to dr arunabha ghosh ceo of the council for energy environment and water well known public policy research institute and think tank focused primarily on resources and environment I caught up with him in Dubai and I began by asking him how the general mood was at COP28 and what were the issues that he was most focused on. It's a mood of anticipation. We all know what the challenges are. We all know what the issues are. Question is what will be the first move coming out from the presidency as we get started? Are there some bold statements that will be put out some bold numbers on the table that sets the mood in a way? to be a more positive and constructive cop for us at CW we have you know dozens of engagements showcasing our research we've just published some very innovative research on the lack of ambition of the developed countries but also the continuing glaring inequities in the sort of individual carbon footprints that we observe for instance even the top 10% richest people in developing countries have a lower carbon footprint than the average of developed countries 
let alone the elite in developed countries. And we see that on their current trajectories, developed countries will end up consuming 3.7 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent, more than what they were supposed to as per their own targets for 2030. So these are huge implementation gaps and honestly, an unwillingness to hold the mirror to oneself and see the kind of impact we're having on the planet. Right. That's interesting. So if you were to look at what the conference as a whole was going into areas like energy transition and climate finance, climate adaptation, uh, compensations, what is your own hierarchy of preferences or where do you feel most of the attention will be ought to be focused on? The COP28 in Dubai is really about the global stock take. It's the first global stock take since the Paris Agreement came into force. So this is something that all countries and all parties will be looking at. And it's taking stock of where we are with the planet, but it's also taking stock of what we are doing individually. And I think for me, the biggest issue, therefore, will be about accountability. It is what have you done to catch up for all the unmet promises of the past? And what are you planning to do to plug the gap in your ambitions into the future? Because 30 years after the UNFCCC was signed in 1992, we still don't really have an accountability mechanism that is robust enough to hold parties to account. To me, that will be number one. The second thing that will have will get a lot of attention is the operationalization of the loss and damage financing facility. This was announced last year. It was the sort of only success that came out of the Egypt COP. But the nuts and bolts of it is what has been discussed over the past year. So now this loss and damage fund is supposed to sit within the World Bank, at least in an interim way. But the real issue is how will it be capitalized and who will get the money? Of course, developed countries are insisting that large developing countries should also contribute to it. My argument here is that loss and damage fund is about loss and damage. This is damage being caused by others' actions in the past to countries and communities in the present. And therefore, asking countries and communities in the present to contribute to someone else's actions of the past is, you know, just goes against any kind of grain of justice that we can think about. So, co contributions for future adaptation or co contributions for mitigation, that's one thing. But for loss and damage, what we are arguing for is that there should be clear understanding of the vulnerability of large and small developing countries. And there should be a Global South-led research consortium that helps to monitor how these impacts are unfolding. Right. Last question, Arunaba. So India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi will be there and two biggest emitters, that's the United States and China, will not be there, or at least the heads of state will not be there. So does India or could India have a greater heft in the proceedings? What's your sense? I think ever since Paris, in any case, India has had heft in the proceedings because, you know, we can't be called a naysayer anymore. We come to the table, not just with the talk, but having walked the talk, we already are the fourth largest renewable energy market in the world by deployed capacity. But more than that, I believe Prime Minister Modi will be one of the first few heads of government who will be making a statement in the opening plenary, and that itself demonstrates the importance that India has accorded. So we'll see what he has to say and whether any important announcements are made. More than that, of course, India and the UAE have a strategic partnership. 
So regardless of whether China and the U.S. are represented or not, I think India will be here in a strong way in support of the presidency. Arnav, all the best for the conference and hope to catch you after it to get a sense on how it went. Sure, Govind. Yes, let's do a post-mortem, but hopefully it's not a mortem. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Govind. Bye. Charlie Munger and his investment principles. Charlie Munger, investing legend Warren Buffett's partner and friend and vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, died at 99 in a California hospital. Munger began managing investment partnerships in 1962 and then through 1969, while the S&P 500 gained about 5.6% annually, Buffett's partnership returned about 24.3% annually. Munger's did even better, averaging annualized gains of 24.4%, says the Wall Street Journal. And we'll come to why or how shortly. In 1975, shortly before he joined Berkshire as vice chairman, Munger shut down his partnerships. Now, the two men had long invested differently. Buffett, under the influence of his mentor, Benjamin Graham, would buy almost any business, even if it was near dead, as long as it was cheap. One such example was Berkshire Hathaway itself, which apparently had been a dilapidated textile manufacturer when he bought it in 1965. Munger instead focused on great businesses at acceptable prices, reckoning that their ability to produce cash in the future would more than compensate for paying a premium price up front. To bring things back home, I reached out to well-known fundamental investor Ramesh Damani and I began by asking him about his own experiences and learnings from Munger on the very basics of long-term investing and stock picking, including those picked up while in his presence in Omaha. I've been following him almost since I was in college. I had first heard of a company called Berkshire in 77 when I went to America. The price was maybe $75 at that time. And over the years, I've come to realize what an instrumental part Charlie Munger was in the building of Berkshire. And I think the only tribute I can pay him is a story in Henry Adams told that a great teacher lives in eternity because you never know where his influence stops. I think Munger's influence on not only investment, but psychology, corporate governance, the China crisis, the Middle Eastern wars, is permanent and long-lasting. I think his influence will be felt, as the quote said, for many, many generations to come. So he has also been personally a very profound influence on my investing life, Govardhan. And Ramesh, if you were to pick, I mean, I'd love to obviously go a little deeper into that. But if you were to pick the first thing, maybe chronologically, since I'm not able to, I can't think of any other way to approach it. What would be the first thing, let's say, you took away from him, which would in some ways also have contributed to the bedrock of your investing approach? Well, I think the first thing is Charlie Munger is very clear. The clarity of thinking and the ability to call a spade a spade is truly extraordinary and remarkable. And so many complex issues in the world, global warming, Bitcoin, corporate governance, derivative accountings, which I didn't know much about, I listened to Charlie Munger's view and I realized that was the correct view to have. He had already distilled everything. And as Warren Buffett said, that when he asked him a question, before you finish asking the question, he's already figured out the essence of the problem facing you. So his ability to get to the core of the issue was extraordinary. In terms of my investing career, of course, I was more basic. I wanted to learn the virtues of compounding and how to look at problems. And what Charlie Munger taught us was that if you can't solve a problem linearly, try and solve it algebraically, which is in reverse. The great mathematician Jacobi always used to say, reverse always reverse. 
And Mangai should say the same thing. Said if you can't decide who you want to marry, decide who you don't want to marry. What are the qualities you don't want to look in a spouse, and then find someone exactly the opposite. So you could use it in various situations where you're stuck. So Mangar has been a defining influence not only in my life, Govind, but in the three generations of the Manis, myself, my son, and even my six-year-old knows the photograph of Charlie Mangar, and I could tell he was very puzzled to hear about his death this morning. Your six-year-old grandson, you mean? Yes, my six-year-old grandson. We are my son, of course, is a statue of Mangar. For many years in his office, and in fact, one of the firms that he runs, capital firm, is called Lollapalooza Investing, because Munger tributed said that all investing is a combination of various factors, be it engineering, psychology, medicine, and uh, compounding. And so he took the name, and we actually have a company called Lollapalooza Capital. That's interesting. So you talked about elimination, Ramesh. So what's a good illustration of that in, let's say, maybe a stock or a sector you would have purchased, where you would have actually arrived at that by eliminating rather than direct selection? I think the best example I give is after the tech boom in 2000, there was a huge boom I felt in the BPO or the KPO industry, so-called, where I felt a lot of the employment would come across. But I was very hard-pressed to figure out which companies would participate in it. So I first looked at the broad picture. I said, what is going to be the size of the KPO, BPO market in 10 years? And there were some reports suggesting with $20, $30 million. Then I tried to figure backward is to which companies can make a run of it, which company has access to talent, which company has access to processes, which company has access to Western markets. And from there, directly there was a company called ESERV at that time, which ultimately got merged with TCS. I felt that would be a good business to start with. And amazingly enough, the stock did pretty well after that. So uh, I use it informally all the time. If I can't answer a problem linearly, I try and look at it backwards and say, here's the solution now. How do I get back to the elements of the answer for this problem? So that, and of course, the other thing that we owe almost infinite debt of gratitude to Buffett and Munger is to understand to us compounding and how compounding of anything, whether it's money, whether it's knowledge, or whether it's behavior, or whether it's reading, you do a little bit every day and get a bit smarter. And over a 20, 30-year period, is an enormous payoff in doing that. In terms of money, if you compound money every three years, in 30 years, your money grows up 1,000x. 1,000x, let me repeat that for effort. So that's, I think we learned directly that from Buffett and Munger, that even a man of modest means, modest stock capabilities, if he remains invested in winning stocks that compound over 20, 30 years, can transform a middle-class life into a fairly generous and up, a rich life, as a matter of fact. And that's thanks to the power of compounding that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger taught us. And I'm going to come to that in a moment. You did say and imputed as well that when you go to Omaha, you're in a learning mode. I mean, you're really there to learn. And that's what you've been doing always. But tell me an instance where, let's say, you had a certain preconception or a conception of something. I mean, it could be to do with looking at balance sheet in a certain way or assessing a management in a certain way or even a business, which you feel was a rock solid business or a sector. And you changed your mind and you had to really work hard to change your mind because of something that they said. Is there any example that comes to mind? I'm not sure there's a particular example, but Munger always used to say that you get the success you deserve. You have to deserve the success you get. So a lot of times, for example, I missed out on a very big trade. I wasn't ready or I you know, didn't act decisively enough. I think the answer that came back to me is perhaps I didn't deserve the success at this point. One of the attributes that Munger taught us, just to give a snapshot of what he did in his life, is that he took 
10, 20 million dollars he had at the daily fund, daily commerce journal that he ran, and didn't invest it for 20 years or so, till he found the perfect investment after reading a column, put that money in there, and that went up three or four X, and then they gave that money to Lilu, and that he moved up 10 X. So he made 10, 20 X return for that money, that 40 million became ultimately 400 million. So he said, great opportunities are very rare, but when they come, you have to back up the truck and buy it. Don't buy it with the thimble, buy with the bucket at that time. I think that's always stuck with me. Of course, that is easier to express as an idea than to do it in reality. That's why he's Mangar and I'm Ramesh. But I hope sometime in my career or through my teachings, someone will learn when the opportunity comes to you know back up the truck and buy it because the Indian market also has had tremendous opportunities over the last 30 years. Right. And I'm sure those opportunities will come. So, you know, when you look at the opportunities that you've seen in India versus, let's say, the kind of opportunities you've seen there. And sometimes novices might ask this question, right? The US market is different. The Indian markets are different. Companies operate differently. Tariffs operate differently. Barriers to trade operate differently. Is that something that you've ever encountered as a question? And how have you answered it to yourself? I did. I would think that. But I think they've been disproved. For example, one thing is that Indian markets, you can't make that kind of money you can make in versus societies because you're dealing with rupees instead of dollars. But you look back and study the histories of Infosys and Wipro, they've compounded over 30 years at periods, compounding rates greater than 30%, 35%. And dividends also have compounded at a fairly superior rate. So you've had great stock picks in India that have done and built wealth over long periods of time. So that answers that question. The other question we always had is that perhaps the U.S. market is very efficient and you can't make money in the U.S. market. But if you look at the last 10, 20 years, companies like Google, Facebook, NVIDIA, they all came from basically small cap stocks to become mega caps over a period of time, including, of course, Amazon. So I think opportunity abounds every day in the market because human nature doesn't change. You move from fear to greed. And I think what Munger and Buffett taught us was that we should take advantage of that, use volatility as a friend, and the only risk is the poor loss of capital, not the volatility that is inherent in any stock selection. Right. And you referred, Ramesh, to what I would broadly call geopolitics because you mentioned the Middle East and so on and how Munger would look at it. And what's the learning there? Because these are all recent events and yet they could affect, though they've not really affected this time, but tensions like this or geopolitical tensions, which a lot of people are talking about now as having a play on markets and stock prices. How would he have looked at it or would he have looked at it more recently? Sure, Govind. He had surprising views on it. For example, global warming, which is now you know the rage of all discussions, how it affects the economy, how you invest ESG. Charlie Munger is on record as saying, the concerns about global warming are overblown. That if the temperature goes up by half a degree or one degree, human beings will learn to survive and do well even in that kind of environment. Regarding China, there's been a big thing about trade barriers and how China is doing this and that. And Munger is often of the view that we should try and be friends with China. America and China should try and be friends. In fact, he pioneered one of the iconic investments in Berkshire Hathaway in a company called BYD, which is based in China. And the CEO of BYD, he called it the new Thomas Edison. So he was very open-minded about things. On the other hand, he always called accounting treatments that was given to derivatives as sewage. And he said that was an insult to sewage to call them sewage. In matters of, say, bitcoins, he says that they should be banned in matters of active trading now in India, we're seeing a huge upsurge in option trading. He called it the most useless form of activity and that he wouldn't bother with if governments had banned active trading and options and futures. 
So he had very unconventional views. But if you always listen to him, he was always very rational. One of his big heroes in life was Benjamin Franklin, who was an author, an ambassador, a poet, scientist. And he always tried to emulate the simplicity of Benjamin Franklin's thinking. And Benjamin Franklin once said, and he followed the principle, that money is not particularly good because the more you have it, the more you want it. And despite his stature as vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, he was worth only a modest $2 billion or so compared to Warren Buffett's $100 billion. And he was very anxious to give away also that. So I think there's a lot to learn from the life and legacy. And that legacy will rebound over many, many generations to come, Govind. Right. And I think the BYD example is a good one because, I mean, it took a long time for that investment to turn around. And who could have, in their wildest dreams, guessed that this Chinese entrepreneur would suddenly become a force when everyone was obviously looking at Elon Musk? You're right. The other point also paid tribute to Munger, and so would I, is that he moved the thinking. Buffett was in the occupant of this grand Dodgeville village of value investing, where you buy companies for net-net cash, no matter what the business was. Munger was the first guy who prodded Buffett in his own way to move to buying a wonderful business at a fair price rather than a fair business at a cheap price. So he pushed the envelope and made Buffett buy Coke and made buy Wells Fargo, the railroads. He said they're great businesses and the cash flow over the years will more than make up for the better price you're paying. So the power of the brands and the power of looking at a good investment was Munger's almost incalculable contribution to Buffett and Buffett himself has acknowledged that. Right. You talked about the long-term investing as in, you know, looking at something for 20, 30 years. And that really is about longevity. And Charlie lived up to 99. Of course, he may not have known that he would live till 99. But in retrospect, it appears that, yes, he could have bought stock at the age of 60 and then, you know, held on till he was 90 and so on. And that is really the sort of the more fundamental question now to you. I mean, you know, it's tough. People don't have that ability to think so long term. And can you train yourself? I mean, you know, to think 20 years and 30 years because we're all mortal. And how do you bring these two almost disparate forces together? At one level, the mortality and the other is the absolute power of the market to compound and deliver to you those amazing returns that you've just talked about. Go when it comes naturally to it. Either you're born with it or you're not born with it. I was with the dream that prepared long-term investing in my career as further enhanced it. And I believe my next generations will also do that. So either you get it or don't get it. Some people want the excitement and you know they want the trading and the quick profits and they do that. But they can generate income for themselves but rarely wealth for themselves. Wealth is generated by not paying the bid indifference every time, not paying the brokerage, not paying the taxes but we're remaining invested in high-quality businesses. And sometimes dividends in like Coke, for example, account for almost 35% of the value that has been created by Berkshire's investment in Coke. So I think it's something you either you get it or you don't get it. And you know, obviously, Munger had it in spades. And a lot of, I'm part of the religious cult that believed in Mungerism. So we almost instinctively got it that you know, great businesses take time. Rome wasn't built in a day. Neither are great businesses. So let's stick around with them. And that's, I think, the useful answer, to put it mildly. When did you last get to see him and what was that experience like? Of course, like most you know, solid brokers to Omaha, for the Woodstock capitalistic event, as Buffett called it. And at that time, he used to sign autographs for the foreign delegates, which I was one. So I met him for that few seconds in person. Unfortunately, I've not had the pleasure of either interviewing him or meeting him beyond that. But of course, his work lives on as his legacy. 
And if I may go in before I end, I would like to have this following quote about uh, Charlie Munger. It has been said that for those of us who knew him, of course we'll miss him. And for those of you who didn't know him, I'm really sorry for your loss. That's a wonderful and uh, poignant note to end on. Ramesh, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Govind. R.I.P. Charlie. Henry Kissinger dies at 100. Former presidential advisor Henry Kissinger died at the age of 100 at his home in Connecticut, said a statement by his consulting firm. He is the only American official ever to concurrently serve as both Secretary of State and White House National Security Advisor during the Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford presidencies, the Wall Street Journal reported. He was seen as playing a key role in ending the U.S. war in Vietnam and in shaping American foreign policy towards the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1973 along with the Vietnamese leader Le Duc Tho for pursuing secret diplomatic talks that forged the Paris Peace Accords ending the United States military campaign in Southeast Asia. I happened to see him in Singapore around 20 years ago speaking at a global entrepreneurship summit. While at that point too, he was no longer the powerhouse he once was, the hall was overflowing with people who were there merely for a glimpse of the legendary diplomat. I'd rather not address that question because it may disturb the equilibrium of those people sitting in the front row, he said cheekily to a question on regional cooperation, if I remember correctly. The world's most expensive cities to live in. Singapore and Zurich have surpassed New York to become the world's most expensive cities to live in this year, according to a new survey by the Economist Intelligence Unit. The cost of car ownership, expensive alcohol and rising grocery prices saw Singapore pull ahead of the United States city with which it shared top spot last year, according to the Economist Intelligence Unit's Worldwide Cost of Living 2023 report. The alcohol part is of course interesting because I would think and I do think that in India you pay some of the highest prices for alcohol and I do wonder whether we use that as a measurement when we measure cost of living across cities and I'll come to that in a moment. Back to the global ranking, Zurich jumped from 6th place last year to rank alongside Singapore thanks in part to the strong Swiss franc as well as expensive groceries, household goods and recreation. Geneva tied with New York in 3rd position and Hong Kong rounded out the list of the top 5 costliest places. Overall, global prices rose an average 7.4% year-on-year in local currency terms, slightly down on last year's 8% increase. The Business Standard reported that the survey was carried out between August 14th and September 11th and compared more than 400 individual prices in 173 cities globally. So, if we were to do a similar city survey in India, which cities would you rank as the most expensive? I would think it's Mumbai for absolutely no reason at all and then maybe Delhi and Bangalore, followed by others. Just saying. Ultra luxury properties worth more than 40 crore rupees have seen a surge in sales. As many as 58 ultra luxury homes have been sold across the top seven cities in 2023 for a collective value of around 4,063 crores. And this compares to about 13 ultra luxury homes sold in the same cities for about 1,170 crore last year. Anarok research data has shown. Mumbai has dominated this list with 53 ultra-luxury residential deals in 2023, comprising about 91%. Not surprising because Mumbai has the highest real estate prices in the country. Delhi NCR recorded four deals for two ultra-luxury homes in Gurgaon and two bungalows in Delhi. At least 12 deals in 2023 were worth more than 100 crore rupees each. 10 such deals in Mumbai and 2 in Delhi NCR. Now, this is something that we've referred to in the past as well, which is the 
rising number of homes or houses worth more than 100 crore rupees. This also, of course, shows that while, on the other hand, affordable housing sales are going down, luxury and ultra-premium luxury, the category we just referred to, is rising and a reflection of strain at the bottom end and, of course, abundance on the top end. Before I go, tomorrow I will be speaking with Jyoti Mayal, president of the more than 75-year-old Travel Agents Association of India. Do catch up to learn, if nothing else, on how India and traveling Indians can play an important role in being ambassadors to our, that is, India's prosperity, and why we need to be more favorable towards tourism and travel, particularly outbound. That's it from me then. Have a great day and weekend, and see you on Monday. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopsis or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>